Inflation last month fell to its lowest level in nearly two years. It came in at 5%. The White House is welcoming the latest numbers. Others are not so sure. The story is coming up on this Wednesday, April 12th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, vaping company Juul is paying to settle yet another case. Massachusetts, five other states, and Washington, D.C. will divvy up a settlement. The Bay State will get $41 million from the deal. And we'll take a closer look at the long-term mental health effects of the Boston Marathon bombings. The trauma extended beyond those who were physically injured 10 years ago. I had trouble taking care of myself, trouble eating, trouble sleeping. When I did sleep, I had nightmares. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Tennessee House Republicans who recently ousted two black lawmakers over their gun control protests are receiving more backlash, this time from Shelby County. That's where local officials voted to reinstate Representative Justin Pearson on an interim basis two days after Nashville City Council did the same for Justin Jones. In Pearson's remarks today, vindication. We look forward to continuing to fight. Republicans accused Democrats Pearson Jones and their colleague Gloria Johnson of bringing disorder when they joined gun control protests at the State House last month, days after a school shooting left six dead in Nashville. Johnson, who was white, was spared expulsion by one vote. A filing in federal court reveals former President Donald Trump suing his former attorney and fixer Michael Cohen for $500 million for allegedly violating attorney-client privilege and spreading falsehoods. Cohen testified before the Manhattan grand jury that later indicted Trump on 34 felony counts connected to hush money payments. Trump pleaded not guilty. He's the first former U.S. president to be criminally charged. NPR will no longer post content across its more than 50 official Twitter accounts. NPR's Bobby Allen reports the decision follows Twitter owner Elon Musk falsely labeling the network's main account state-affiliated media. Musk labeling NPR's Twitter account with the same disclaimer given to propaganda outlets in China and Russia sent NPR executives into crisis mode last week. NPR asked Musk to remove the label. Instead, he changed it from state-affiliated media to government-funded media, which is still misleading since only about 1% of NPR's budget comes from the federally funded Corporation for Public Broadcasting. NPR CEO John Lansing said the labeling saga shows Twitter is a risk to the network's credibility. And even if the label is now removed, NPR has lost faith in the decision-making process at Twitter. By going silent on Twitter, Lansing says NPR is protecting its reputation without, quote, a shadow of negativity. Bobby Allen, NPR News. The government reports U.S. inflation's eased again. Here's NPR's Alina Seljuk. Prices in March were 5% higher than a year earlier, and that's actually an improvement from February when the annual measure reached 6%. On a monthly basis, prices in March rose 0.1% from February. Inflation has been moderating for almost a year now, but it remains more than double what the Federal Reserve wants to see. The central bank meets again in three weeks to vote on another likely interest rate hike in its quest to cool off spending and the economy. Officials will have to carefully weigh the impact of the recent banking turmoil. It's prompting more lenders to tighten up their loans, which also slows economic growth. Alina Selyuk, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Officials with the Boston Public Schools are apologizing after a mistake they made in some school admissions. They wrongly informed some sixth grade students that their grade point average qualified them to apply to the district's selective exam schools. WBUR's Max Larkin has more on the mix-up. An eligibility notice doesn't sound exciting, but it's the equivalent of a high SAT score, a good sign for students interested in attending one of Boston's exam schools. However, dozens of students received the letters confirming their GPAs were high enough to apply when they weren't. Other students were told they couldn't apply when they actually could. The district admits it missed the error. Now it's double-checking its data and plans to send out new eligibility notices by the end of the week. Since last summer, BPS has been under state scrutiny for unreliable data regarding matters from graduation rates to transportation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's budget is now before the city council. She filed a $4.3 billion spending plan today. It covers expenses from July of this year through June of next year. It includes $4 million to expand the city's universal pre-K program. The mayor is also asking for $50 million to improve public housing property in the city. The council will hold several hearings on that proposal. A final vote is expected before the summer. We have some news about this station now. WBUR has announced it will no longer post content to the social media site Twitter. This comes on the same day that NPR made the same announcement, as you heard just a few minutes ago. The decision came after Twitter chief Elon Musk wrongly labeled NPR state-affiliated media last week. The label was later changed to state-funded media. Only a small fraction of NPR and WBUR funding comes from federal sources. In a memo today, WBUR CEO Margaret Lowe wrote that NPR and WBUR believe recent actions by Musk seek to undermine the integrity of our news organizations. And for the second straight day, most of Massachusetts is under a red flag warning that indicates an increased danger of outdoor fires. The warning is due to warm temperatures, low humidity, and gusty winds. It remains in effect until 7 o'clock tonight. Should be a nice evening ahead and a partly cloudy night. Lows about 54. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs near 80 degrees. 72 degrees now in Boston at 4.07. WBUR supporters include Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. And I'm Juana Summers. The request for price check on aisle four brought some good news for a change. Grocery prices fell last month for the first time in two and a half years. Gasoline prices were also down in March. Those were some of the highlights from the government's latest inflation snapshot. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now with details on the report. Hey, Scott. Hi, Juana. All right. So this was a little better than forecasters had expected. Any more details about what exactly is going on here? Let's start with those supermarket savings. You know, grocery prices had been on a tear really ever since the start of the pandemic when people suddenly had to eat all their meals at home. Last month saw the first actual decline in grocery prices since September of 2020. Now, it wasn't a huge drop, three-tenths of one percent, but some of the priciest items saw a bigger break, including eggs. Egg prices, as you know, were an inflationary poster child earlier this year when avian flu knocked out a lot of laying hens. That has started to turn around, though, and egg prices plunged nearly 11 percent last month. That's a relief for Taylor Marks, who lives in Rowlett, Texas. 
when I work from home, I eat them every day for breakfast. So I eat a lot of eggs. Other customers have also taken notice of the falling prices. Tom Charlie, whose family runs a small chain of supermarkets in the Pittsburgh area, says he's now selling four times as many eggs as he was earlier this year when the price topped out at $5 a dozen. By the way, Wana ham prices also dropped about 5% last month, so you can definitely save some green on eggs and ham. Oh, gosh. All right, Scott, what is happening to overall inflation? Annual inflation was 5% in March. That's the lowest it's been in almost two years, way down from last summer when inflation hit a four-decade high of just over 9%. But it's still a lot higher than Americans were used to back before the pandemic and before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Taylor Mark says even though she is glad to see gas and grocery prices coming down, she still feels squeezed by the rising cost of living. Even when my take-home pay goes up a little bit, with everything else rising, too, it just doesn't feel like I truly got a little bit of a raise. If you strip out food and energy prices, which tend to bounce around a lot, so-called core inflation is still stubbornly high, 5.6 percent over the last 12 months. Okay, and what's keeping those prices climbing? One of the biggest drivers of inflation last month was the cost of housing. Uh, but there is some good news there. Housing costs are not climbing as fast as they were, and they're expected to cool off further as the year goes on. What inflation watchdogs are really worried about now is the price of services for things like travel and entertainment. Uh, Airfares, for example, jumped 4% last month. Hotel rooms jumped more than 3%. Mary Daly, who leads the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco, says people spend a big chunk of their money on services. And until those prices start to come down, it's going to be hard to get overall inflation under control. We need to see that coming down to feel confident that we're on our path to 2%. What I'm looking at today, I say, oh, the economy is making the adjustments I would like it to make, but we're not there yet. Now, there is some encouraging news. One big factor in the cost of services is wages, because, of course, it takes workers to deliver services. And we have seen some cooling in wage growth in recent months. So over time, that should take some of the pressure off services prices. Scott, how does the Fed plan to address inflation as it's coming down? Fed officials are widely expected to raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point when they meet next month. Uh, They've signaled, though, that could be their last rate hike for a while. That's because the central bank is keeping a close eye on bank lending, which has slowed sharply after the collapse of those two big regional banks last month. A slowdown in bank lending acts kind of like an additional interest rate hike, putting the brakes on the economy and maybe helping to curb these rising prices. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Coming up, the story of an unsung hero who helped a woman in New York City. But let's turn to politics now. The Republican presidential field for 2024 is starting to take shape. Former President Donald Trump, of course, is in and is considered the frontrunner. And today, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott took another step of his own bid, announcing an exploratory committee. That allows him to raise money while testing the waters. Joining us to discuss the 2024 Republican field is NPR National Political Correspondent Don Gagne. Hey, Don. Hey there. All right, so let's start with Senator Tim Scott, who's inching towards an official campaign. He's a conservative from a deep red state, South Carolina. He's the only black Republican in the Senate. What's his pitch to voters? 
He makes the case that his life, his success as an African-American Republican, as a true conservative, is a testament that Republican policies work for all Americans. He made his announcement today in the form of a video, and in it, he puts race front and center, opening with images of South Carolina's Fort Sumter, where the first shots of the U.S. Civil War were fired on this very date in 1861. Country is once again being tested and divided, and he blamed Democrats. Joe Biden and the radical left have chosen a culture of grievance over greatness. They're promoting victimhood instead of personal responsibility, and they're indoctrinating our children to believe we live in an evil country. And it's worth noting that Senator Scott's reputation has been that of a good guy, statesman type in the Senate. Mm -hmm. But he was clearly reaching out to the hardcore base of the GOP with references to the radical left and and the liberal agenda. Hmm. It's early, but polls seem to show that Senator Scott has a very steep climb to the nomination. Uh, that's yeah, that's an understatement. He's <laughs> yeah. uh, respected, certainly, and has long been mentioned as a possible candidate for national office. But he starts out in the low single digits. Uh, Donald Trump, clearly the front runner. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, again, not yet in the race mm -hmm. officially, is right now considered the strongest challenger. Enough so that Trump has been attacking him in speeches on social media. And there's a pro-Trump super PAC that's been running spots on cable news attacking DeSantis. I saw one while watching TV this morning. Here's, here's just a taste of it. DeSantis voted to cut Medicare two times. DeSantis even voted to raise the retirement age to 70. The more you learn about DeSantis, the more you see he doesn't share our values. He's just not ready to be president. And worth noting here again that DeSantis is not yet a candidate, so we don't yet have attack ads on his behalf. Mm -hmm. Okay, and there's another name from South Carolina to mention outside of Tim Scott, former governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley. How does that play in a state that holds its primaries early and where they should both be looking for like that home field advantage? And right now, neither can claim any kind of home field edge. Mm -hmm. uh, a brand new poll from Winthrop University shows Trump way ahead in South Carolina. In distant second place is DeSantis. Haley is in third, but a close third. Then Scott is way back in single digits. Unlike Democrats, Republicans are not shaking up their presidential primary calendar. They're sticking with the Iowa caucuses going first early next year, then New Hampshire. I guess the point being that there's still almost a year of campaigning ahead before people start voting. And so there's a lot that can happen, right? A, a lot can and, and will happen. Uh, campaigning really is only now, just now, kicking into higher gear. Uh, people like Haley and Scott are doing traditional campaign stuff in the early states, speeches, town halls, photo ops with kids, uh, sometimes photo ops with farm animals, literally. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yes, there's uh, certainly plenty of evidence that reinforces Donald Trump's strength with the core GOP base, 30, maybe 35% of the party is with him. And in a crowded field, that's enough to win. The field is starting to grow. And even with a few candidates, if they start to divide the anybody but Trump vote, that makes it hard for an alternative to Trump to gain any kind of traction. The other wild card, we don't know how all of Trump's legal problems are going to play out as part of this. NPR's Don Gagne. Thanks, Don. My pleasure. 
Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Heather Church will never forget the day, many years ago, when she walked into a busy clothing store in New York City. When I went in there, I went down to the lower level, taking the stairs and wearing a very long skirt and a pair of boots. My skirt got caught on my boot, and it threw off my balance, and I felt my hand reach for the railing and miss it. And my body twisted as my boot tugged on my skirt. And suddenly, I was falling down the stairs backwards. And then I heard steps, stomps in fact, moving quickly towards me. And someone caught me. My head didn't hit those hard stairs and I didn't suffer any injuries. And I don't know who that person is. That is my unsung hero. I don't know who they were, and I was so flustered at the time. I can't even remember their face, but I do remember what they did for me that day, and I remain grateful. Thank you. Heather Church lives in New York City. She says she hopes that stranger at the store might hear this story and understand how much their actions continue to impact her all these years later. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. Stocks have raced earlier gains today. The Dow dipped about a tenth of a percent. S&P lost four tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq lost a point to 85 percent. Robot dogs made by Waltham-based Boston Dynamics will once again be deployed by the New York City Police Department. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says the digi-dogs will be used to assess bomb threats and hostage situations. They will not be equipped with weapons. The city abandoned a tryout with the robo-dogs two years ago after some residents expressed privacy concerns and worries about their intimidating nature. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum. With captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. 
Coming up today at 4.50 on WBUR, more of our special week of coverage 10 years since the marathon bombings. You'll hear about the long-term mental health challenges the blast caused for those who witnessed them. Again, that's at 4.50 on WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And PNC Bank, celebrating all who go above and beyond to give kids the best start in life. PNC is committed to early education. More at pncgrowupgreat.com. Another beautiful day today, partly sunny skies with highs around 72 degrees, which is where it is right now. Partly cloudy overnight tonight, falling just about 54. Tomorrow, mostly sunny highs near 80. This is WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. From Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. For several years, xylazine has been wreaking havoc among drug users in Philadelphia, particularly in the part of the city known as Kensington. On the street, it's known as Trank. It's a legal drug for veterinary use as a sedative. But when humans inject it, usually mixed with opioids, it can be devastating. Now, with xylazine linked to a stunning increase in overdose deaths across the nation, the Biden administration has taken an unusual step, designating the substance as an emerging threat. Over the next 90 days, the government plans to roll out a national plan to better understand, identify, and combat it. That's work Sarah Laurel has already been doing for the last four years. She's the founder and executive director of Savage Sisters, a housing and harm reduction nonprofit in South Philadelphia. We caught her in the middle of another very busy day. Thanks for taking the time, Sarah. Thanks for having me. All right, Sarah, I want to start with your, your own story, because not only do you run Savage Sisters, but you you know the community of the people you serve really intimately and their struggles, right? I do. I am in recovery from homelessness as well as substance use disorder in Kensington. Can you tell us a little bit about what makes, you know, fentanyl, which is already dangerous, even more so when xylazine is added to the mix? Xylazine is a game changer for people who use substances. Uh, When it first was noticed in the Philadelphia drug supply, we started to see a slower response uh, when we were reversing overdoses. And then we began seeing wounds on individuals who are using uh, trank dope. And as the past four years have gone on, we saw a very large increase. It became the predominant supply with fentanyl becoming the adulterant to it. Hmm. And we are now left with individuals that have open gaping um, ulcers, infections, some necrotic tissue, and that leads to amputation. When we air conversations like this, I I think listeners who don't have relevant experience sometimes tell us they don't understand why some people experiencing addiction would seek something so dangerous. I'm curious, what would you say to help them understand? Nobody asked for this. When you are a person who is purchasing drugs from the 
uh, criminal drug market, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Mm -hmm. I don't think that anybody knew that it would have this catastrophic effect. However, once we found out what was in the supply, it was too late because individuals were already chemically dependent on it. So how do you help someone who is overdosing or withdrawing from xylazine? Typically, if you're just combating an opioid overdose, that individual responds rather quickly when administered naloxone. However, because of the heavy sedative in the drug supply, those individuals are not responsive. They are not beginning to breathe on their own. And so we now carry oxygen and have been for a few years. We are the only organization that carries it street side and reverses overdoses with naloxone and oxygen. Um, But I will say it is very effective. Um, As far as the withdrawal protocols, I'm not a medical professional. The individuals that are going into inpatient are being treated only for opioid withdrawal, which is a small part of what they are coming off of. So we need to address the xylazine withdrawal. Xylazine is an alpha-2 agonist, and it hits the GABA receptors. So it is similar to a benzo withdrawal. What do you make of this move from the Biden administration? Uh, Are there other specific practical recommendations you'd make to the White House about how to fight back against Trank? Well, I I don't. Their response is to say it's a problem. I haven't seen action yet. So my call to action is we need updated withdrawal protocols. We need updated overdose reversal protocols. We need safe supply. We need to stop focusing on one substance because no matter what happens, if we announce that we're hyper-focused on one substance, the criminal drug market will step in and we'll find a new adulterant that could be potentially more lethal and we will have to figure that out in a few years as well. We're four years deep in this. My city is devastated by these consequences and so are my friends and we need resources street side immediately. Can you tell us about someone you've helped or are helping recently? We help people every single day. Uh, We have the storefront. Individuals come in for showers and wound care. Uh, Sometimes that looks like just wrapping those wounds and giving them supplies to take with them. A large number of the individuals that our wound care team treats, they need hospitalization. They need IV antibiotics. Some will eventually need an amputation. So what we are doing is the best that we can. However, the need is much greater. Um, We had a success story yesterday. An individual walked in and was ready to go to treatment and he got picked up and he left. The large majority of people that we see come in, they get harm reduction supplies, wound care showers, and then they go back about their business. Is there anything else you want people to know either about the drug or the people who use it? Please don't call it a zombie drug. It is not a zombie drug. My friends are not zombies. They are people who use substances and who are victims of the criminal drug market and the adulteration of the supply. And I am asking that we see some action around the response so that our friends can get the help that they need. Sarah Laurel, founder and executive director of Savage Sisters in Philadelphia. Sarah, thank you so much. Yep. The city of Oakland is in the process of removing the last remaining residents from what was once considered Northern California's largest homeless encampment. KQED's Aaron Baldessari reports. At its height, the settlement of unhoused people at Wood Street in West Oakland stretched for more than a mile, with RVs and trailers and makeshift homes tucked underneath a freeway overpass, home to more than 300 people. Over time, people living there built it into a resource hub, 
with a community kitchen, a free store, meeting spaces, and storage facilities. It's all just a crushed dream now. Manaz Sabiri lived there for more than five years. And I don't know, I don't know, I, none of us know where we're going to be going. And it's almost like, what's the use? Because they're just going to come and clear out that spot too. California's Department of Transportation cleared out the bulk of residents back in September. Now the city of Oakland is removing the 60 or so folks who remain. That's in part due to growing complaints from area business owners and neighbors. Kathy Kuhner lives not far from the Wood Street settlement in West Oakland. She's watched the unhoused community here grow, but like a lot of people, she isn't sure what the solution is. I think we're a wealthy enough country that we can take care of people who don't have homes, but I don't think we can allow them to be in the streets, the parks, or on public or private property. The city has long planned to redevelop the lot into affordable housing with 170 condos and apartments. It got $8 million to relocate residents to a temporary shelter made up of tiny cabins. But for residents like Lamonte Ford, who lives in a trailer, going there means giving that up and getting rid of most of his belongings. I've been here 10 years. You think I can pack it up in two bags? I can't. I can't even think about packing it up in two bags. And if he goes into the tiny cabins, he says there's no guarantee he'll get into permanent housing. A city audit found fewer than a third of the people who go into this program got long-term homes. For NPR News, I'm Erin Baldessari. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Another glorious day. Should be a nice evening ahead. Partly cloudy tonight, not too chilly, right about the mid-50s. Tomorrow, another sunny day could rise to 80 degrees. Sumner Tunnel will not be closed to traffic this weekend. The state says it'll keep the Sumner open for the Patriots Day weekend. It's usually closed most weekends for construction work. Coming up on WBUR, the long-term mental health challenges for those who witnessed the Boston Marathon bombings. That's coming up in 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. She joins us for our monthly check-in. There's so much to talk about from food competitions to reflecting back on the pandemic as federal and local restrictions end. We talk to her about all of it, plus what she's craving this spring in her kitchen. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Memphis, the Shelby County Board of Commissioners voted today to send Justin Pearson back to the legislature in Nashville. Republicans banished him and Representative Justin Jones late last week over their role in a gun control protest on the House floor after a deadly school shooting. Jones was reinstated to his House seat Monday. Both men are back on an interim basis. 
President Biden has arrived in Dublin after leaving Northern Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. That's credited with largely ending 30 years of sectarian violence and was negotiated with the help of the U.S. NPR's Tamara Keith reports on Biden's speech earlier today at Ulster University in Belfast. President Biden said peace was never inevitable. It was hard-earned. But he said with stability and predictability, business has flowed to Northern Ireland. In 25 years since the Good Friday agreement, Northern Ireland's gross domestic product has literally doubled, doubled. And I predict to you if things continue to move in the right direction, it'll more than triple. Biden called for political leaders to get past their differences and get government institutions here functioning again. He said U.S. corporations are eager to invest, though no specific deals or investments have been announced as part of his trip. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Belfast. Inflation eased in March as cheaper gas and food provided some relief. Consumer prices rose just one-tenth of a percent from February to March. And Pierre Scott Horsley has more. Right now, betting markets think the Fed will raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point when it next meets in three weeks. But that could be the last rate hike for a while. Uh, You know, since the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks last month, Other lenders have gotten stingier about making loans, and that caution among bankers acts kind of like another rate hike. NPR Scott Horsley. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Mayor Michelle Wu is asking the Boston City Council to approve her nearly $4.3 billion budget proposal. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the mayor formally rolled out her spending plan this morning. Wu's 2024 budget proposal is about 7% higher than last year. It includes $4 million for universal pre-K and $50 million to improve Boston public housing properties and help make them fossil fuel free. Wu says this budget also focuses on funding basic government services like repairing stairs and sidewalks. So we want to make sure that rather than just always announcing new things and new things and new things, and certainly there's some great new things here, uh, the focus also has to be on doing what we already do well. The city council will hold several hearings on the mayor's budget proposal with a vote expected before the summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Governor Maura Healey is establishing a judicial nominating commission. She signed the executive order today. The commission will be responsible for advising the governor on the nomination and appointment of judicial officers in coordination with the governor's council. Healey also appointed 27 members of the commission today and established a code of conduct for its members and judicial nominees. Senator Ed Markey will be joining President Joe Biden on his current trip to Ireland. Biden officially began the visit in Belfast. The Boston Boston Globe reports Markey is set to join the president on the next leg of his trip, which is set to wrap up on Friday. While diplomatic in nature, the trip is also personal to both men. Biden's family comes from Ireland's County Mayo, while Markey's ancestors come from County Kerry. And it was 89 years ago today that the Mount Washington Observatory in New Hampshire recorded its world's fastest wind speed. The record gust of 231 miles an hour still stands as the fastest wind speed ever recorded by a staffed weather station. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Sister Act, and Then There Were Nuns, a divine feel-good musical comedy through May 14th, lyricstage.com. 72 degrees in the Boston area, another nice evening ahead. Then partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, mild again in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunny and even warmer than today, highs hovering around 80 degrees. It's 435.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. Coming up, we'll hear about what the state of Virginia is doing around the voting rights of people with felony records. But first, the company that popularized vaping, Juul, is paying to settle yet another case. Today, the New York Attorney General Letitia James, with counterparts in five other states and Washington, D.C., announced the $462 million settlement. Juul's lies led to a nationwide public health crisis and put addictive products in the hands of minors who thought they were doing something harmless. It's the largest settlement Jules paid so far in cases for its role in creating a new generation of young nicotine users. NPR's Yuki Noguchi joins us to talk about it. Hey, Yuki. Hey, Andrew. All right, so what does this settlement do? Well, there's the impact on the company, and then there's the question of what it might do for public health. Uh, It's obviously a financial blow for Juul, another one. With this, it will have paid well over $2 billion to settle these kinds of cases so far. It's in a target zone because Juul really single-handedly launched e-cigarettes and repopularized nicotine use, which had been on a serious decline among teens. And it used social media and exploited viral marketing very, very effectively. But in part because it's been a target, Juul is no longer a major player. Its success spawned hundreds of newer companies, some of which sell different forms of e-cigarettes like disposable pods and stuff. But Mm. what you know, I think the question is, what does this settlement signal to them? And California Attorney General Rob Bonta said this. I'm proud to stand up here today with a message to e-cigarette and vaping manufacturers. If you set your sights on our children, we will set our sights on you. So they're suggesting other companies might follow in Juul's footsteps. Huh. So, so if the industry has grown well beyond you know, just Juul, you know, do we know what effect pun- punishing Juul will have on youth vaping overall? Well, that's precisely the concern among anti-nicotine and tobacco advocates. Dennis Hennigan is among them. He heads regulatory affairs for the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. Even now, uh, years after Juul entered the market, we still face a very serious problem of e-cigarette usage among kids. So Hennigan and others argue a lot of other things also have to happen. You know, the money has to go to funding smoking prevention programs. He wants to see internal jewel documents to study how the company engineered the success so they can better counter it. And he wants to see federal regulatory crackdowns, which he says have been too slow. What has the federal response been? Well, most of that's come from the Food and Drug Administration. And over the last couple of years, it's been reviewing every single e-cigarette product, which is 8 million items for approval. And the FDA initially denied Juul's products, but then is re-reviewing them. So far, the agency has approved a handful of e-cigarettes on the grounds, you know, they might help adults trying to reduce harm from smoking tobacco cigarettes. But the agency is rejecting products with youth appeal, you know, things that come with fruitier candy or mint flavors. Mm -hmm. So only a tiny percentage of the products out there are actually approved for adult use. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But you can still find tons of unapproved products sold at gas stations and other places because regulators stepped in after the youth e-cigarette boom was already underway. And removing them from the market has been a complicated process, you know, with little enforcement. NPR's Yuki Noguchi, thanks so much. Thank you. When people are convicted of felonies, each state has its own rules on whether and when they can regain the right to vote. Some states like Minnesota and New Mexico have expanded access in recent months. But Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, has gone in the other direction, undoing automatic rights restoration in his state. And he is now facing a federal lawsuit. Ben Pavior from member station VPM has more. Blair Dacey will never forget the moment she found out she'd been pardoned. She was outside and heard shouts from other inmates. I get inside and they're like, you're going home, you're going home. And I was like, I didn't understand what they were saying. Dacey never expected to be out so soon. When she was 17, she says she came to her friend's defense in a fight. Dacey ended up kicking the friend's husband in the head. He later died and she was convicted of second degree murder. I wasn't expecting it at all. I mean, it was an accident. I was 17 and I never meant to hurt that guy. Former Governor Ralph Northam pardoned Dacey in his final days in office. When she got out of prison, Dacey got a job as a legislative aide, but still can't vote. Now she's not sure where her two-month-old application for rights restoration stands, even after sharing her story with the current governor, Glenn Youngkin, at an event. It's really just a mystery to me right now about what I should even expect. Dacey is the first to acknowledge she's lucky. Most people caught in limbo aren't white women who've met the governor. But Sheba Williams, with No Left Turns, a Richmond-based criminal justice group, says the rights restoration process affects everyone. She points to data showing it reduces recidivism. I think a lot of people have the misconception that this impacts only Black people, only poor people. This impacts all of us. Williams' nonprofit is part of a new federal lawsuit against the Youngkin administration. It alleges the lack of transparency in their process violates the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. William says it's also an issue of basic fairness. Because at the end of the day, you allow them to pay taxes in this state. You allow them to live and own land. They should be able to have a say-so. And who represents them? The last three Virginia governors, one Republican and two Democrats, eventually broadened restorations to include all people released from prison. Several hundred thousand people regained the right to vote. It was part of a national movement backed by groups from across the political spectrum. And that seemed to be the trend with Youngkin, who restored the rights of around 3,500 people in his first few months in office. In an interview last May, Kay Cole James, who oversees the process, said she didn't envision big changes. The only thing we're looking for are efficiencies, ways to do it faster, quicker. But something changed in the second half of the year, when James's office restored rights to just 800 people. In a letter to a Democratic lawmaker last month, James said they're considering each applicant individually. But it's unclear what criteria they're using. Speaking to reporters last month, Youngkin defended the process. The first thing we're doing is providing every applicant a full review. And that's what we're charged to do. The roots of the governor's authority over restoration extends to the 1902 Virginia Constitution, which was explicitly designed to disenfranchise black voters. And Williams, of No Left Turns, says that's one reason why this shouldn't be up to the governor at all. We have been fighting to make this process be removed from the hands of a person and their emotion and how they feel in the moment and make it an actual process that can't be denied. Some lawmakers from both parties have advocated changing the state constitution so that rights are restored automatically. 
Top Republicans in Virginia's General Assembly blocked any changes. But with all 140 seats up for grabs this November, and Youngkin mentioned as a possible presidential contender, the fight will likely spill onto the campaign trail. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Some of the most contentious discussions in any family can be about hair. Author Carol Lindstrom knows that very well. As a kid, a disagreement with her mother over the length of her hair opened a door to learning about her Native American ancestry. She wrote a children's book called My Powerful Hair. NPR's Elizabeth Blair talked with her. When Carol Lindstrom was a little girl growing up in Bellevue, Nebraska, she really wanted long hair. I used to use a blanket I had as a young baby, you know, put it on my hair and pretend I had long hair, you know, (laughs) swing it around. But But her mother wouldn't let her. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. No, every time I got a little bit long, she'd say, oh, you have to cut it. It's too wild. One clue that helped her get it was a black and white photograph that sat on top of the TV set. It was a picture of her grandmother and two great aunts. And they were wearing, you know, just these white smocks and their hair was just really chopped short and they had bangs. It just didn't look right, you know. And I remember asking my mom about that picture. What was grandma doing? And my mom didn't really know much about it other than to say, well, that was when grandma and your great aunts were sent to boarding school, Indian boarding school. At Indian boarding schools, children were subjected to all kinds of indignities. Lindstrom's grandmother and great aunts attended in the early 1900s. They were forbidden to speak their language and forced to cut their hair. Lindstrom is an enrolled citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwe. As an adult, she set out to find out more about her culture The hair is such a big part of who we are and our identity. Mom never had long hair. She was told hers was too wild. Our reader introduced himself in his native language, Ojibwe. My name is Talon. I'm from the Turtle Mountain Reservation. In My Powerful Hair, a little girl relates the events of her life with the length of her hair. When my baby brother was born, my hair touched my shoulders. The gift of welcoming him into the world is woven into my hair. Ten-year-old Talon Jerome says most of the boys at his school have short hair, but he prefers to keep his long. Our hair is like the source of our strength and power and like memories and stuff like that. Talon learned about what happened at boarding schools from his mother, Sharona Jerome, a teacher at Turtle Mountain Elementary. She thinks my powerful hair will help her students. Because I really believe it's important for students to know why their hair is long. The other students who are maybe not as involved with their culture, they're learning from us. We are the generation that's teaching them our culture again. Carol Lindstrom says there was a time when publishers wouldn't even look at her stories about Native culture. 
And then in 2014, We Need Diverse Books came about. The campaign pushed for greater diversity in publishing. And when that happened, the world suddenly went click. A publisher picked up her book, We Are Water Protectors. It became a bestseller. Lindstrom says she almost never saw Native Americans in books she read as a little girl. Those she did see were depicted as savages. She says my powerful hair is her gift to kids who look like her. I just want children, especially that are Native, to see themselves in a positive way when they pick up a book. I didn't have that. It was always blonde hair, you know, real light, light colored skin. Not who I was when I was younger. I just didn't know where my people were. Lindstrom says her mother died in 2015 without ever learning the power of her hair. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered as we have a week of dry weather. California's huge snowpack in the Sierra Nevada is starting to melt and communities are planning for even more flooding. That story coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. And check back later this evening. We'll explain how the latest data on inflation may affect the Fed's decision on interest rates. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays go at it again tonight in Florida. Boston has lost 11 straight games at Tampa. Tonight, Chris Sale tries to turn things around. He faces Taj Bradley, who's going to be making his debut in the majors for Tampa Bay. Game time is 6.40 tonight. And in the forecast, another nice evening ahead, partly cloudy overnight tonight. Shouldn't be too chilly. Temperatures about the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, sunny could rise to 80 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 449. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. Since the 19th century, populism flourished in America's urban-rural divide. It's still true today. The parties end up taking up issues and forming alliances with groups in ways that create a ratchet effect, where the urban-rural divide starts to grow as those new issues get folded into the political system. It's our special series, The Power of Populism. That's on point tomorrow at 10 and again at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. Smoke from a massive industrial fire has forced as many as 2,000 residents to evacuate their homes in eastern Indiana near the Ohio border. There are possible harmful particles in the air from this warehouse blaze. The fire is contained, but as Chris Welter of Ohio member station WYSO reports, it is expected to burn for days. Huge plumes of thick black smoke fill the sky over Richmond, Indiana. After the fire erupted Tuesday at a plastics recycling and storage facility. The air still has a chemical smell and it's hard to breathe. It's like someone used a giant smoke machine in this city of some 35,000 people. Schools are closed for now. Terry Snyder is a high school junior whose family lives just a block away from the fire. 
He says shortly after he saw the flames, police came by and told his family they should get out immediately. I'm just glad that the house is still standing, but it's all in the in that black smoke. Snyder says he didn't even have a chance to get his things. His family is now staying at a Red Cross shelter a few miles away at a Pentecostal church. They've been told it could be three or four more days until they can return home. Hopefully it would be sooner than that. Because yeah. it's getting kind of boring over here, <laughs> if you know what I mean. People who live within a half mile radius of the blaze have been urged to evacuate. Others who live further out, but downwind, have been instructed to shelter in place, turn off their HVAC systems, and shut windows and doors. There's concern about hazardous particles in the air from the burning plastic stored at the warehouse. Jason Sewell from the EPA said at a press conference this morning that he has a team of contractors monitoring air quality in the Richmond area. Fortunately, the toxic compounds that we're looking for, we're not seeing. But everyone needs to keep in mind that smoke is harmful and uh, we, we are seeing smoke in our particulate meters. It's not clear yet how the fire started, and officials say there will be an investigation once the flames are out. Richmond's mayor, Dave Snow, said at the press conference that the warehouse has been cited for numerous safety violations in the past, and that anyone responsible for the blaze will be held to account. We were aware that uh, what was operating here was a fire hazard. So this, this was a fear for us. President Joe Biden said this afternoon that he has been in touch with Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb and offered federal help to make sure the area is safe. Meanwhile, those residents who have had to leave their homes can only sit and wait for the smoke to clear. For NPR News, I'm Chris Welter in Richmond, Indiana. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Saturday marks 10 years since the bombings at the Boston Marathon. The blasts killed three people and injured nearly 300. Countless others were traumatized when they saw the bombs go off, even though they themselves were physically unhurt. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more on how that trauma can manifest itself. The 2013 Boston Marathon bombings are seared into people's memories. Manya Chalinski was in the bleachers at the finish line. I was standing there looking, I think, directly ahead, and a bomb exploded across the street from me. I don't know how I knew, but I knew it was a bomb. And I was frozen in place. Chalinsky wasn't physically hurt. She and her friends made it through the chaos. They didn't really understand what had just happened, and they all just went home. Chalinsky realized something was wrong the next day when she went to work and took a conference call. In the middle of the call, I smelled the bomb, and I reacted the way that I reacted the day before, which was I was frozen in place. Something in my brain clicked. Okay, I'm looking outside the door of my office. There is no smoke. I don't think it's happening again. For months, Chalinsky would sometimes smell explosives or even see destruction that hadn't really happened. She was not functioning well. I had trouble taking care of myself, trouble eating, trouble sleeping. When I did sleep, I had nightmares. 
Eventually, Chalinski was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Her brain was stuck in danger mode. Dr. Alicia Morland-Capuya is director of the Institute for Trauma-Informed Systems Change at McLean Hospital. She says fear is a survival mechanism, and the brain stores frightening memories to remind us to avoid future similar situations. But problems can arise when that mechanism doesn't shut off. We're not designed to be under chronic stages of stress and or fear when it doesn't turn off and it starts to get in the way of our ability to function and to do everyday life. That's when we're starting to kind of move or brush up against the edges of a post-traumatic, a more chronic process that, that would really benefit from some additional expert support. The decade of research since the bombing suggests that about half of all U.S. residents have experienced a trauma in their lives, and the psychological effects from mass disasters are a major public health concern. Boston University School of Public Health Dean Dr. Sandro Galea says there are many victims of mass tragedies beyond those physically hurt. Given any traumatic event, large-scale traumatic event, there are individuals who are directly experiencing the trauma and many others around them who also experience a traumatic event, which means there are more people who are indirectly affected than those who are directly affected. Even people outside of Massachusetts were traumatized by the bombings, according to researchers. Roxanne Cohen-Silver, a professor at the University of California at Irvine, says it was the first U.S. tragedy where graphic images were widely disseminated on social media without editorial oversight. Her studies found that people just repeatedly seeing the images online suffered mental distress. We actually have seen a cycle in which people engage in a lot of media is associated with stress and anxiety and worry, which then they're sensitized and are sort of drawn to the next story. And that is a cycle from which it's very difficult to break. Cohen Silver says this weekend's anniversary could be a trigger for many people. Her advice is to stay away from graphic images and focus on positive things. She says while the country is more sensitive to mental health now compared to 10 years ago, the attention often centers on those who were physically hurt. There is clearly a a focus that doesn't also simultaneously say, let's make sure that the people who were at the finish line who witnessed this tragedy are also taken care of, even though they left with four limbs. For Manya Chalinski, she says she's in a better place now, thanks to years of therapy and a support group for those who have experienced terrorist attacks. She's also become what she calls an accidental advocate. Because Chalinski says she had little guidance on how to get help, she's urging officials to provide more support to people whose injuries from mass tragedies aren't visible. I don't want this to happen to anybody else. I want the next time something big happens that there will be mental health support and there will be validation for the real distress that these kind of events can cause people. Chalinsky worked with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley on legislation that expands federal mental health resources for survivors of crises that are declared federal emergencies. President Biden signed that bill into law in December. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Our coverage of the Boston Marathon bombings 10 years later continues tomorrow on WBUR. David King is a marathoner. He's also a trauma surgeon and Army combat surgeon. He ran the marathon in 2013. 
About an hour after he finished, the two bombs detonated, so he went straight to work in the emergency department at Mass General Hospital. When I opened the door and turned the corner, I saw the first wave of patients just arriving. And when I saw the pattern of injury, I recognized it as something I'd seen on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan. Dr. David King on running, recovery, and resilience tomorrow on All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Our Planet Live in Concert. The Netflix series is now a live concert event coming to Emerson Colonial Theatre on April 23rd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheatre.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, once a target of gun violence, is speaking out about the mass shooting at a bank in his city earlier this week. Knowing how many people I know who work in that building, my mind raced back to my experience with an active shooter just over a year ago. It's Wednesday, April 12th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also ahead, Democrat Justin Pearson has been reappointed to the Tennessee House of Representatives after he was expelled last week. And the Navy has begun to look into the service's high rate of suicide. Advocates say the practice of putting clusters of sailors on limited duty can make depression worse. They're just floating around. Having that lack of structure is probably not a good situation. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The second of two lawmakers expelled from Tennessee government last week following a protest on the state house floor was reappointed by his local constituents today. Member station WKNO in Memphis, Christopher Blank has more. Shelby County Commission Chair Mikkel Lowry got right down to it. Everyone to please take their seats. Let us, let us knock out this meeting here. Seven commissioners quickly reappointed Democratic Representative Justin Pearson to the job he lost Thursday when Republicans expelled him and one other black lawmaker for a breach of decorum or speaking out of turn. Republican commissioners skipped Wednesday's brief meeting. As supporters cheered, Pearson said he would continue to speak out against gun violence. We look forward to continuing to fight, continuing to advocate until justice rolls down like water. His colleague, Justin Jones, was reappointed by Nashville government on Monday. 
For NPR News, I'm Christopher Blank in Memphis. A large industrial fire in eastern Indiana near the border with Ohio is expected to burn for days. Officials there have urged nearly 2,000 people to evacuate the area. Chris Walter of member station WYSO reports. The fire at a plastics recycling facility sent thick black smoke into the air above the city of Richmond, Indiana. People who live near the blaze have been asked to evacuate. Others who live downwind have been instructed to shelter in place, turn off their HVAC systems, and shut windows and doors. Environmental Protection Agency staff are on the scene to monitor for certain chemicals. Jason Sewell is with the EPA. Fortunately, the toxic compounds that we're looking for, we're not seeing. But everyone needs to keep in mind that smoke is harmful. We are seeing smoke in our particulate meters. Local officials say the owner of the facility has previously been cited for numerous safety violations. For NPR News, I'm Chris Welter in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Police in Louisville, Kentucky today released frantic 911 calls that came in as witnesses first reported the mass shooting that occurred early Monday morning at a downtown bank building. Five people died, eight others were wounded. Stocks closed even lower as the Labor Department reported inflation easing last month. Here's NPR Scott Horsley. Consumer prices in March were up 5% from a year ago. That's the lowest annual inflation rate in almost two years. Food prices were flat last month, while energy prices were down. Stripping out food and energy prices, so-called core inflation is still relatively high, largely driven by the cost of shelter and services such as travel and entertainment, which have seen growing demand. The Federal Reserve is widely expected to raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point at its next meeting in three weeks, but the Fed is also keeping an eye on bank lending. That's dropped since the collapse of two big regional banks last month. The decline in bank loans acts like another break on economic growth. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 38 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Leaders of the Massachusetts House are out with their plan for how the state should spend revenue from the new millionaire's tax. The House budget plan filed today proposes using the money to make school meals free for all students permanently. It would also fund clean energy upgrades for old schools and infrastructure repairs on the T. The House plan does not include Governor Maura Healy's proposal to use the money to freeze tuition at state universities. Commercial real estate in the Boston area still has not fully recovered from the pandemic. The vacancy rates for offices are higher because of remote work and higher interest rates, as WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports. The vacancy rate for commercial buildings in Boston is around six percentage points higher than it was pre-pandemic. Suburbs are seeing even more vacancies. But Charity Edwards, president of the Realtors Commercial Alliance of Massachusetts, says there's a bright spot. The champion in commercial real estate right now is is the industrial. So industrial for warehouses are bringing that vacancy rate way down. So we're seeing a a big surge with industrial that we hadn't seen before pre-pandemic. Industrial spaces include giant warehouses, athletic facilities, and manufacturing plants. Edwards says she's also seeing a real estate boom among cannabis manufacturers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. The state has completed its purchase of Wydet Circle in Boston. It was once the proposed site of an Olympic stadium. The land will now be used to meet the state's transportation needs. The MBTA bought the property for $255 million. It will eventually be turned into a rail yard for the commuter rail. The T says it could also be used for any potential expansion of South Station and for the proposed east-west rail connector between Boston and Pittsfield. It'll be 10 years on Saturday since the Boston Marathon bombing. 
Magazine. Former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis is reflecting on how security has changed in the past decade. WBR's Lainey Ruckstall has more. Davis says we are facing less of a threat of terrorism from abroad in the U.S. today. But, he says, there are now increased concerns to our safety in other realms. The threat morphs every year. Now the threat seems to be more domestic, and we have to adapt to that. The active shooter thing is horrible, and I don't know in that particular arena if we're safer now. I worry about that, and, and I worry about our inability as a country to deal with it. He says the good news is there are lots of new technologies that can help us identify and manage these threats. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. In the forecast should be another nice evening ahead. Partly cloudy tonight, not too chilly, right about the mid-50s. Tomorrow, another bright day. Could make it to 80 degrees tomorrow. Then for Friday, sunny again. Back to the chilly mid-70s. This is WBUR. It's 507. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. In just a few minutes, we are going to hear from the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, on the law he calls absurd and dangerous following Monday's mass shooting in that city. But first, to California, where flooding and storms have caused billions of dollars in estimated damage already this year. State officials are now warning the floods in the central part of the state could linger through most of the year. NPR's Nathan Rod is in the Central Valley reporting on this and joins us now. Hey, Nate. Hey, good to talk to you. So some places could be flooded for a year? How does that work? Yeah, well, snow, that's uh, oh. the short answer. You know, basically, California right now has a historic snowpack. Uh, in parts of the southern Sierra Nevada mountains, snow levels are at more than 300% of normal. Uh, and most of that frozen water is going to melt as temperatures warm up and water officials, you know, they don't know when, they don't know how fast. Mm. Uh, and those are very crucial questions because a fast melt could overwhelm dams and levees and lead to more flooding. Uh, what they do know is that at some point all this snow is going to come down out of those mountains uh, to where I am on the valley floor. The, the central valley floor specifically, right? And um, what are you seeing as you travel around the region? I'll be honest, Andrew, it is wild. Uh, south of where we are now in the Tulare Basin, this long lost lake that used to exist in the valley floor before you know, most of the water was diverted for farming and towns has basically come back to life. Uh, you've probably seen pictures. I'll tell you, pictures don't do it justice. Mm. The scale of the flooding is really unlike anything I've ever seen. It's truly like there's an inland sea with telephone poles sticking out of the water and the occasional piece of abandoned farming equipment. You know, there's even seagulls flying around overhead. Uh, the water surrounds a couple of sides of this small agricultural town that we've been spending some time in called Corcoran. Uh, and earlier today, we stood on one of the levees protecting the town with its city man manager, Greg Gatska. And he said all of that water we're seeing was just from the rain that California experienced earlier this winter. But we know that we have that snowpack, which is the ominous thing that we can see in the horizon that's going to be coming our way once it starts melting. It's going to combine and it's going to co-join with all this water out here. That water is then going to be sitting against our levee. We have to endure that for seven months to two years, most likely. 
two years because the closest equivalent to what's happening now, a flood in 1983, left water in Tulare Lake for that long. So it gives you a bit of a sense of how significant this flood is. To this point, what's actually flooding right now? So at this point, it's mostly farmland. You know, some people have lost homes. There's definitely a lot of anxiety in places like Corcoran where people are watching water sit on those protective barriers, those levees, wondering how much higher it'll go. Uh, But the main impact at this point has been on agriculture, mainly almonds, pistachios, grapes, alfalfa. Uh, I had dinner last night with a county supervisor near Tulare Lake who estimates the agricultural losses in his region have already hit a billion dollars. And again, that's before the snowpack has really reached this area. So the damages could be much higher when all is said and done. You know, Nate, there's all this concern about flooding when, you know, for years we've been talking about drought in California, right? Yeah, I mean, drought's old news, right, Andrew? No, (laughs) California, much of the West has been in a historic mega drought. It's the driest period in at least 1,200 years. Scientists say that is partially being driven by human-caused climate change. That larger drought is not over. But in California, what water officials call the surface water drought, that is the water on the surface of the earth, right? The snow, the water in reservoirs, the rivers, that is mostly over because of this ridiculously wet winter the state has just experienced. Uh, The West Coast has been hit by more than 30 atmospheric rivers over this water season. Those are these high-level bands of tropical moisture which caused flash floods on the coast and inland and created this massive snowpack. Uh, But right now we're in this kind of slow-moving disaster phase where people know more flooding is coming. They're trying to prepare. uh, But how fast this melts is kind of out of anyone's hands or knowledge. NPR's Nate Rott. Thanks, Nate. Yeah, thank you. Louisville, Kentucky Mayor Craig Greenberg is doing what no elected leader ever hopes to do. Just three and a half months into the job, he's now the city's consoler in chief following Monday's mass shooting at Old National Bank. And as Greenberg mentioned in a press conference last night, it's extremely personal for him. Last year, I survived a workplace shooting. And now yesterday... I've lost a very close friend in another workplace shooting. Greenberg knew local businessman Tommy Elliott, a senior vice president at the bank and one of five people killed after another bank employee allegedly attacked his colleagues with a legally purchased AR-15 style rifle. Nine were injured before police killed the accused gunman in a shootout. It came nearly 14 months after a college student opened fire on Greenberg's mayoral campaign headquarters. Mayor Craig Greenberg joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. And I'd just like to say that we're so sorry for your loss and for everyone who's being affected by this. Thank you very much. It's certainly been a heartbreaking couple of days for all of us here in Louisville, around Kentucky. But the warmth and support we've had in each other and from around the country has been overwhelming and gracious. I mean, it has no doubt been a really difficult week for you and others there. So I just want to start by asking you how you're doing and what feelings have stood out for you since the shooting on Monday. Well, I think some of the initial reaction um, when I got the alert, I was driving to the office and I heard this way too many sirens. Uh, My heart just dropped when I saw an alert on my phone that we did have an active shooter. And then when I saw the address, it dropped again, knowing how many people I know who work in that building. Um, My mind raced back to my experience with an active shooter just over a year ago when an individual entered our campaign office and fired six gunshots at me. And 
I was just hoping that everyone in that building on Monday morning was going to be as fortunate as I was. Um, and then I quickly learned that was not the case. So it was a tough day notifying families that they had lost some, but it was also heartwarming to see the doctors and nurses in action at the university hospital that were saving lives. And as I learned of the heroism of our police officers that quickly jumped into action and also saved lives, um, that gave me strength to move forward. That includes Louisville police officer Nicholas Wilt, a brand new member to the force who was shot in the head on Monday. Wilt survived, and last we heard, he's in critical condition. Is there anything else you can share about him today? Uh, I've been told um, by medical professionals that he has stabilized a little bit. He's made some positive progress over the next couple of days. He is certainly still fighting hard, and so we're going to continue to pray for him and send he and his family all of our support. Um, but he he still has some progress to go. Um, so that's that's the latest update I have as of this morning. Last night at your press conference, you called forcefully on lawmakers to grant your city the ability to address gun violence with more autonomy. I'd love to know, ideally for you, what would that look like? What How would that take shape? I do think that cities like Louisville that have unique gun violence epidemics should have the autonomy to figure out what we want to do to reduce gun violence. And so to those in state legislatures who believe in local control, let's give cities like Louisville the ability to address our local issues in our unique ways for important issues like this. Also in Kentucky, we have a law that this assault rifle that was used to murder five people and that was used to lay in wait and shoot at rescuing officers that came to the scene, that gun under Kentucky law will one day be back on the streets. Because right now under Kentucky law, confiscated guns are required to be turned over to the state who are in turn is required to auction off these weapons. That is wrong. That is absurd. That is dangerous. And we can work together to change that law so that if a local government like Louisville wants to destroy illegal guns that are confiscated or guns that are used to commit violent crimes, we can destroy them here locally so that a gun like this AR-15 is never used to cause harm again. I want to ask you a bit more about that state law and how you plan to advocate for policy change on that or any other gun control measures, given the fact that other proposals have failed to make their way through Kentucky's Republican-controlled legislature. I'm cautiously optimistic today. Uh, First, I know that my friends of all political parties agree that they never want to see harm like this happen ever again to anyone. And based on some of the outreach that I've had over the past 24 hours since I called for this change, I am hopeful uh, that we can sit down and work together and, and talk about areas that we agree on and where we can move forward and work together, taking action to reduce the amount of violent crime that's taking place. I want to end by asking you about Louisville and the people who were impacted that were killed, but also who were injured in the shooting. Is there anything that you would like us, that you would like the country and the world to know about those people and about the city that you represent? Well, I lost a very good friend. Uh, Tommy Elliott was a close friend of mine, um, and he was a close friend of Governor Bashir's and many others. Um, and so I re- fondly remember Tommy as a wonderful, loyal friend. 
a great father, a great husband, a great person who was very involved civically in giving back to others and, and helping others. But I know that we lost five wonderful people. We lose people far too often. Another individual on Monday was also murdered by gun violence in a separate targeted incident just a few blocks away after this happened. And so whether we know the victims or not, every loss to gun violence is a tragic loss, a life taken too soon. And so that is why I'm, I'm hopeful that people will, will take action. There's no, no use in finger pointing or placing blame. There's no partisan politics right now is, is not helpful. Let's find a way that we can work together and start to take some steps forward that are going to make a meaningful improvement in making cities like Louisville safer. That's Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg. Thank you for joining us, and our thoughts are with you all. Thank you very much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. Today's stocks erased earlier gains. The Dow dipped a tenth of a percent, S&P lost four-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq lost eight percent. Consumer prices in greater Boston increased by 4.7 percent over the past year. That is just below the national average. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics released the numbers today. The report says prices in the Boston area for food were up by 9.2 percent in the past year. Energy prices rose 3.5 percent. Over the past two months, inflation has slowed, with consumer prices here rising by two-tenths of a percent. Marketplace has all the day's business news coming up in just over an hour at 6.30. It's now 5.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, sharing Sherpa with Robert Beer on view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays go at it again tonight in Florida. Boston has lost 11 straight games at Tampa. Tonight, Chris Sale tries to turn things around. He faces Taj Bradley, who's going to be making his debut in the majors. Game time is 6.40. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Another beautiful evening coming up, then partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, mild again in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunny, warmer than today, highs hovering around 80 degrees. 72 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Elsa Chang. Look, the Democratic and Republican parties are so far apart on most issues, it can often feel like they're speaking different languages. That's why it's so striking to hear bipartisan consensus on one particular topic. China. It's definitely China. One word, China. It is us versus China. It's not a polite tennis match.
This is an existential struggle. We're standing firm and standing strong and making it clear to China and the Chinese Communist Party that they're not just going to roll over Taiwan as they seemed intent to do. That was Democratic Senate candidate Tim Ryan in a political ad last year, Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher in a committee hearing in February, and Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton on NBC last week. Now, some politicians of both parties have been clear that their rhetoric is directed at the Chinese government. But Democratic Congresswoman Judy Chu of California is concerned that the language of geopolitical competition can open the door to xenophobia against Asian Americans. I have always emphasized to my colleagues that they distinguish between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party. Because I tell you, when it just becomes the Chinese people, then it becomes, in Americans' minds, everybody. I wanted to talk to Judy Chu about this issue because she has a unique perspective. She is Chinese-American herself. And earlier this year, one of her colleagues, Texas Congressman Lance Gooden, accused her of disloyalty in an interview with Fox News. Do you think Congresswoman Chu should be looked into? I think everyone that's standing up for Chinese Communist parties should be looked into. Yes, I question her either loyalty or competence if she doesn't realize what's going on. Gooden said if Chu were serving on the House Intelligence Committee, the speaker would force her off. I'm really disappointed and shocked that someone like Judy Chu would have a security clearance and be entitled to confidential intelligence briefings until this is figured out. This attack from Gooden, these insinuations that Chu could have ties to the Chinese Communist Party, this all came after Chu had publicly defended a Chinese-American man named Dominic Ng, a businessman whom President Biden had appointed to an economic advisory council. Gooden and other Republicans had accused Ng of belonging to organizations that were front groups for the Chinese Communist Party, allegations that Ng and his supporters have refuted. I asked you about Gooden's attack on her. When a fellow House member questioned whether you had personal loyalties to the Chinese Communist Party, what went through your mind? I was outraged. I was disgusted. And most of all, I was angry because it was so racist. It was based on a centuries-long stereotype that Chinese Americans and Asian Americans more broadly are forever foreigners in their own land, no matter how much they've contributed to this country, no matter whether they're someone like me, born in America. My father fought for the U.S. in World War II in the Army. I've been an elected official for 37 years in this country. How much more American do I have to be to prove that I am an American? When we reached out to Congressman Gooden's office, he replied with a statement that accused Judy Chu of, quote, race baiting. Chu says Gooden's attacks are only part of a larger disturbing trend that she has sensed, a new McCarthyism, as she put it, in the Republican Party. To be fair, do you think only Republicans are speaking about China and Chinese people in a troubling way? Like, is it a strictly partisan problem? When you listen to what the members of the select committee said, most of the Democrats portrayed the tension between U.S. and China as one of competition, where the U.S. must regain its uh, leadership in the world in innovation and technology. However, I would say that most of the Republicans characterized it as conflict, and I felt that they were headed towards a new Cold War. 
So the select committee could take the issue and try to deal with it in a rational manner, or it could turn into xenophobic rhetoric. Well, if I may just speak for myself as a woman of Chinese and Taiwanese descent, I have noticed a shift in the anti-Asian rhetoric used by certain leaders in the U.S. During the pandemic, former President Trump was using blatantly racist phrases like the China virus or like Kung flu. And what's troubling now is it seems like there's a subtler conversation now, one that's still centered on hostility and suspicion towards China, but a conversation that uses the language of national security, of geopolitics, Do you feel similarly that anti-Asian rhetoric seems to have entered a different phase? Yes, we have to take the issues between U.S. and China seriously. Certainly, there is a need for the U.S. to maintain its ability to have things like semiconductors. That's why we passed the uh, Chips and Science Act. Mm -hmm. But... At the same time, we have to be careful about crossing the line. And this is what I have been talking about with my colleagues on the Democratic side. Oh, so you have specifically advised, counseled your Democratic colleagues to watch their tone when talking about China? Yeah. And in fact, uh, we in the Congressional Asian Pacific Caucus uh, sent out messaging guidance to our Democratic colleagues about how to talk about China. Your district contains large portions of the San Gabriel Valley, where a lot of Asian immigrants live, people from mainland China and from Taiwan and elsewhere. Do your constituents tell you that they are worried about the rhetoric on China that they hear from Washington? They are incredibly worried down to their very core. We started seeing this uh, when there was the racial profiling of Chinese scientists and engineers, starting with the Trump administration. The so-called China Initiative. The China Initiative, exactly that, Mm -hmm. where Chinese scientists and researchers were accused of being spies for China on the flimsiest of evidence. Eventually, most of them were exonerated, but their lives were ruined because of this. So as a result, Chinese Americans are indeed very concerned about being the next ones to be accused. Let me ask you then, How do leaders here address concerns about national security and economic tensions between the U.S. and China without letting the conversation backslide into xenophobia or or just straight up racism? The China initiative is a good example of overreach. I mean, obviously, we want to make sure that our national secrets are protected. But what Trump did was to make this a focus on one country. He didn't have a Russian initiative. He didn't have an Iran initiative. No. And um, in the discussions that I've been at on national security, I always remind everybody, the lawmakers, as well as the intelligence officials, that there is tremendous consequence to the xenophobia they could cause if they make this a racial issue. We only have to look at uh, the Japanese-American internment to see that 120,000 Japanese-Americans lost everything that they had based on suspicions that there were spies amongst them. But to this day, not a single case of espionage has been proven. Democratic Congresswoman Judy Chu of California, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you. This is NPR News.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org Tanglewood. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Justin Pearson is the second of two black state Democratic representatives in Tennessee to be reinstated to their office this week. The Shelby County Commission in Memphis today voted to reinstate him. Pearson addressed a crowd after the vote. We are going to see a significant increase in the amount of people who are registered to vote and the people who participate in elections. Uh, The reality is we can't uh, ignore the anti-democratic behavior that that disenfranchised our voters that expelled us from the House. On Monday, Representative Justin Jones was also reinstated, both on an interim basis. Now, the two were ousted by the state Republican leadership after they participated in gun reform protests on the House floor. A white representative who also protested was not ousted. The Biden administration is raising the alarm about a drug cocktail that's being called an emerging threat in the U.S. And Pierce Brian Mann says it's a combination of fentanyl and a drug called xylazine. Xylazine, also known as Trank, first turned up as a localized problem in the Northeast. But Dr. Rahu Gupta, the U.S. drug czar, says it's now laced into much of the drug supply across the entire country. I'm deeply concerned about what is this threat means. For the nation. Fentanyl adulterated with xylazine is driving overdose deaths, also terrible wounds for people who inject the mixture. People are often ending up having to either have amputations of their limbs or having deep ulcers, infections, sepsis, and oftentimes are admitted to intensive care units. White House officials say they'll quickly roll out a public health strategy to combat this fentanyl xylazine mixture. The U.S. is now seeing more than 100,000 drug deaths a year. Brian Mann, NPR News. Wall Street was lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 38 points at 33,646. The Nasdaq down 102. The S&P 500 down 16. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Officials with Boston Public Schools are apologizing after a mistake they made with some school admissions procedures. They wrongly informed some sixth grade students that their grade point average qualified them to apply to the district's selective exam schools. WBUR's Max Larkin has more on the mix-up. An eligibility notice doesn't sound exciting, but it's the equivalent of a high SAT score, a good sign for students interested in attending one of Boston's exam schools. However, dozens of students received the letters confirming their GPAs were high enough to apply when they weren't. Other students were told they couldn't apply when they actually could. The district admits it missed the error. Now it's double-checking its data and plans to send out new eligibility notices by the end of the week. Since last summer, BPS has been under state scrutiny for unreliable data regarding matters from graduation rates to transportation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Massachusetts is among six states that have reached a $462 million settlement with the vaping giant Juul. The company was accused of targeting minors with its ads and falsely claiming that vaping was safer than smoking cigarettes. 
Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell says the settlement includes $41 million for the Bay State. She says that will be used in part for vaping addiction services. And we are seeing a vaping epidemic, of course, among our kids. And Juul was the top product, the industry leader. In fact, the word juuling had become a verb, and that was no accident. She says the settlement also includes restrictions on youth marketing and sales and prohibitions on sponsorships and free giveaways. Seven people from Western Mass are under arrest, accused by the U.S. attorney Rachel Rollins of being part of an organized theft crew. The suspects are accused of stealing catalytic converters from nearly 500 vehicles across New England. Catalytic converters are part of the vehicle's exhaust system and contain precious metals that can be sold to scrap dealers. It can cost thousands of dollars to replace one. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu slash ssw. Another dry and windy day means another red flag warning of brush fires. The warning expires at 7. Clear tonight in the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, sunny could reach the mid-80s. 72 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. And I'm Juana Summers. Justin J. Pearson has been voted back into the Tennessee state legislature less than a week after being expelled. Pearson and another black lawmaker, Representative Justin Jones, who was reinstated on Monday, were both expelled last week. That was after they interrupted a floor session by leading a gun reform protest. Today, the Board of Commissioners for Shelby County, which is home to Memphis, decided to send Pearson back to the Capitol in Nashville. WKNO's Katie Reardon was in the room for the vote today and joins us now. Katie, tell us what you saw and heard. Yeah, it was a full house. That is, Pearson's constituents and supporters were all really galvanized, packing the commission chambers. Hundreds marched with him downtown in a rally beforehand, starting at the National Civil Rights Museum. And while they showed up in numbers, not all 13 commissioners were there, though. Pearson needed a simple majority to be reinstated to a seat, so seven votes, and that's what he got, all Democrats. Uh, some members had previously told media outlets that they were out of town. I spoke with Chairman Mikkel Lowry, the head of the commission, and he's also from Pearson's district, and he had this to say about why he brought the vote today. I think, and I believe, and I think most of the citizens in Memphis believe, and around the world, quite frankly, that expulsion was just a step too far. Uh, Given the fact that that protest was taking on the hill of six people being murdered, Of course, there he's referring to the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville a couple weeks ago where six people died, including three nine-year-old children. And that's the event that really sparked all of this. Okay, so Pearson's been voted back into the state legislature. What comes next for him? 
Uh, Pearson says he will head back to Nashville tonight to be in place for a session in the morning. He gave an impassioned speech after today's vote, and later he spoke with reporters, and he said this. We're going to keep fighting to end gun violence. We're going to keep fighting to end environmental racism and injustice. We're going to keep fighting for our community to lift up those who have been pushed to the periphery, to move them into the center of conversation and decision making. Not the gun lobbyists, not the NRA, not the billionaires and the people who are funding other folks' campaigns, but rather the people. Uh, Pearson also said he will run in a special election to be permanently back in his post. Uh, the vote from the Shelby County Commission today is just an interim re- reappointment. Okay. Question about policy here. Where is gun legislation in the state since the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville that was just a few weeks ago? There have been a a few developments this past week, or sorry, excuse me, this week, but there's still a lot of wait and see about state lawmakers' next moves. On Tuesday, Republican Governor Bill Lee signed an executive order that he says will strengthen background checks. He also encouraged the legislature to come together, which might mean changing previous stances for some. Uh, He wants them to pass a more comprehensive version of a so-called order of protection law in the state. These are typically referred to as red flag laws, where law enforcement um, can take guns away from people who are a threat to themselves or others. I think that we have an obligation, and I certainly do, to remind people that we should set aside politics and pride and accomplish something that the people of Tennessee want us to get accomplished. Katie, what was the response to that? Some Democrats have said they're ready and willing to work with the governor. Last week, Democrats in the state Senate also proposed five other bills on gun safety reform, including their own version of a red flag law. Uh, Some Republican leaders have previously signaled an openness to red flag laws, but without specific legislation drafted, it's, it's unclear what they would actually vote for. Uh, Tennessee is in the spotlight right now because of these expulsions, so there's definitely pressure on lawmakers to act. But Republicans still have a supermajority in both chambers of the legislature, um, so gun reform on any large scale could still be really difficult to pass. It was also interesting today, though, to hear Pearson talk about whether this moment that's been so um, politically focused might in the future translate into more Democrats in Tennessee registering to vote or maybe even running for office. WKNO's Katie Reardon in Memphis. Katie, thank you. Thank you. A Delaware judge is ordering an investigation into how Fox News' lawyers have handled a major defamation case on the eve of the trial. He is also threatening sanctions against Fox News. NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick joins us now. Hey, David. Hey, Andrew. So what is the judge saying? The judge is essentially saying that he's going to rebuke uh, Fox News. He is going to demand that they allow one of their star hosts at the center of these allegations of defamation uh, to be deposed once more under oath by lawyers for Dominion Voting Systems. Let's not forget that they are accusing Fox of defaming them by claiming having guests on and even in some cases having their hosts endorse the idea that Dominion's election machines switched votes over from then-President Trump to Joe Biden in 2020. But they're saying Maria Barro has got to come back. He is concerned that Fox News' legal team and Fox News has withheld evidence from Dominion in this case. Uh, and he's said he would appoint a special court officer called a special master uh, hmm. to investigate uh, the legal team's handling of the case. In addition, he would consider whether there are other ways he might uh, balance the scales to uh, accommodate for what he is strongly suggesting he believes may well be 
unfair play by Fox's legal team by instructing the jury that they can conclude that Fox acted improperly in how they dealt with evidence in this case. So what led the judge to sort of take these steps? Well, there's been a number of incidents accreting. Uh, You know, on Sunday evening, Fox's legal team informed Dominion's lawyers that, in fact, Rupert Murdoch, the founder of Fox News, the chief at the top of the parent company, Fox Corp., uh, was, in fact, an official, an officer of Fox News itself. And why that matters is it's saying that it suggests strongly that he has agency or influence over Fox News' decisions and how they covered key things like the 2020 race, Mm -hmm. even despite the fact that Fox's legal team has been saying, no, he's just, you know, an older, wiser figure who offers advice, but he doesn't really have any influence. The fact that after months of seeking this information, Dominion's only being told that now on the cusp of the trial has struck the judge clearly uh, as very poor form, and he's rebuked uh, Fox's legal team in court over this issue. In addition, uh, evidence that surfaced in the case of Abby Grossberg, uh, a producer for Fox who's now suing the network, involves uh, audio tape of Maria Bartiromo's conversations with former President Trump's uh, then-campaign lawyers. That evidence wasn't provided to Dominion. So again, Hmm. the judge is asking, why is this stuff surfacing now? All right, so big picture, what does this mean in terms of the trial? Well, look, Fox says, look, it doesn't really affect the nature of the trial itself that Rupert Murdoch, to give one example, you know, still didn't have any real agency or influence here. But I think the real question is one of credibility. And that's really at the core of this trial. Is what Fox presented to its viewers and to the world credible? Well, the judge has already ruled that it was false and defamatory. The real question for the jury is, is it something that Fox should be held accountable for or liable for? Uh, Fox is now being questioned whether it's been credible in the information it's provided to Dominion and also now Fox's own legal team involving some of the top corporate litigators in the country are being challenged by the, by the judge effectively for their integrity and their credibility. You know, it's a strong blow and it's right on the cusp of jury selection tomorrow and the jury trial, which is still scheduled to begin next Monday. NPR's David Folkenflik. Thanks, David. You bet. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Navy continues to search for underlying causes behind the service's high rate of suicide. Advocates point to clusters of sailors on limited duty, saying it fuels hopelessness and actually leads to devastating consequences. Steve Walsh with WHRO in Norfolk sends us this report. I kind of figured after his stint there with the hospital that he was on the rebound and he was going to be all right. Robert Deckard talked to his son Cody only hours before the 22-year-old sailor died by suicide. I did not know, right up to the day. I actually had lunch with him and his wife, uh, my grandson, that day. I hugged him, said, I love you, like I always do. Cody was one of four sailors assigned to the Mid-Atlantic Regional Maintenance Center in Norfolk who died of suicide last year. Last summer, he checked himself into the Naval Hospital in Portsmouth with symptoms of depression. He was removed from his ship and placed on limited duty at Marmac. Marmac was the dumping ground for limited sailors, limited duty sailors. He would muster in in the morning and go sit in his car. That's what he did. Decker says his son would watch videos, call his family. Yeah, he's sitting in the car until it's time to go home. That was the that was the answer to my son who who needed help, 
There was no help. Sometimes he would talk to other sailors who were also on limited duty. They were going to doctor's appointments, waiting until they were again eligible to go back to their ships or, in other cases, be released from the Navy. At times, roughly 6% of sailors are non-deployable, meaning they can't be assigned to ships. Instead, the Navy places them on limited duty with a shore command, says Brian Clark, a retired Navy commander and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. There's no place for these guys to go, and basically they're just sort of on paper assigning these people to an appropriate unit, but they're just floating around. Having that lack of structure is probably not a good situation. Uh, I'm sure it contributes to these guys' deterioration of mental health. Clark says programs that were stood up during 20 years of war are being cut. It comes at a time when a study by Navy Medicine released in November found the number of sailors and Marines on limited duty is rising. More than a third of the Navy's cases involve mental health issues. Summertime is hot. Kayla Aristivo is a private counselor who runs Trails for Purpose. She was invited to a mental health stand-down after the four sailors died. She found out that there were hundreds of sailors on limited duty in the same command. That was one of the biggest flags that I raised. It's like, why do we have 500 limited duty sailors in one spot? Talk about toxic work environment. More than half of all limited duty cases are clustered around just four large Navy hospitals. Two in San Diego, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and Portsmouth Naval Hospital outside Norfolk. Aristivo says she was told there were other commands in the Norfolk area with dozens of sailors on limited duty. We have to provide some place where they can stay. I get that. But it's this holding pen. Rather than like, we're putting you here because we want to care for you. And this is how we're going to care for you. Aristivo says each person should be assigned someone so they don't get lost in the cracks while they're on limited duty. In the meantime, the Navy's report on the deaths of the four sailors at the maintenance center in Norfolk are due out later this year. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh in Norfolk. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. If you're a veteran, dial 988, then press 1, or text 838-255. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 20 minutes, Republican South Carolina Senator Tim Scott has taken a big step toward a presidential bid. That story and much more still to come. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com Listen to a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. Violation is a story about two families and a crime that has bound them together for decades. Listen to Violation wherever you get your podcasts. In the forecast, pretty nice out there right now. Strong winds continuing. Clear skies overnight tonight, dipping to the mid-50s. And for tomorrow, suddenly it's July. Sunny skies inching all the way to the mid-80s. Friday should be sunny again, pulling back to the mid-70s, a lot cooler over the weekend. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Sister Act and Then There Were Nuns, a divine feel-good musical comedy through May 14th, lyricstage.com. 
Actor John Leguizamo traveled across the U.S. to visit hotspots of Latinx culture. I go to New York City, D.C., Miami, Chicago, L.A., and Puerto Rico. In search of great stories. We commune with a, a great Latin meal. We share and we talk about what it's like to be Latinx in America at this time. His adventures are captured in a new docuseries, Leguizamo Does America, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. An appeals court decision could come as soon as tomorrow over the abortion drug Mifepristone. Now, the pharmaceutical industry is saying that a decision to limit access to the drug could have effects far beyond abortion. NPR's Becky Sullivan joins us now for more on this. Hey, Becky. Hello. All right. So to start on this, uh, tell us the concerns raised by the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. You know, so the pharma industry had actually been kind of quiet on this case um, up until this week. So because now what's changed is that there's this preliminary injunction from a federal judge in Texas. It's set to go into effect this coming Friday that would essentially undo the FDA approval of this drug. And the industry has started to make it very clear that they think this ruling was bad. Um, So more than 500 pharmaceutical executives, investors and researchers, they signed an open letter earlier this week that criticized the decision. Um, And then just yesterday, someone even further and filed a brief in the case urging the appeals court to side with the DOJ and overrule essentially this lower court injunction. They said um, in pretty strong terms, you know, it could, quote, wreak havoc on drug development and approval. It could cause, quote, widespread harm to patients, providers, and the entire pharmaceutical industry. That brief was signed by about 100 executives and 20 pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer, um, one of the largest in the U.S., obviously. Uh, And today, the biggest industry group, which is called Pharma, put out a statement saying they have, quote, serious concerns with any court substituting its opinion for the FDA's expert approval decision-making. Yeah, strong words. So Mm -hmm. uh, why exactly does the industry think this is such a threat? Well, in short, it takes a lot of time and money to develop a drug and get it to market with FDA approval. Um, We're talking years. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And so part of what makes that investment possible for the companies, they say, is that there is, quote, clarity and predictability in the FDA's review and approval process. It's consistent. They know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Um, But this decision about this abortion drug throws that up in the air, they say. Um, It's a drug that's been on the market for more than 20 years. It has a very reliable safety record. Yet there's just one lawsuit, one judge, um, and now it's seems that the approval could be revoked, and they call that a seismic shift. Um, so pharmaceutical companies in their brief argued that they might have to run larger and more detailed clinical trials, which could make them more expensive, could force them to change the way they label their drugs, or make it difficult um, or expensive to expand the use of drugs after their original trials, which currently is very common. And, and they say that would be true of all drugs or just abortion medication? They do. Yeah, um, no, all drugs. Um, um, so legal experts say this decision could open the door for essentially a new way of challenging drugs of any kind. Um, so this morning I talked to Allison Whalen. She's a law professor at Georgia State University. And she told me while this might start with abortion, it could basically expand, especially to any politically or socially controversial medical products. Take vaccines. That's a key prime example. This is essentially saying here is a way that you could stop these vaccines that you disagree with, not for safety and efficacy reasons, but for other reasons. And so as she says, that target could be vaccines or it could be, say, preventatives for sexually transmitted diseases, could be gender affirming care for transgender people. And all of these things take time and money um, for companies to develop and time, of course, for the FDA to approve. And so if those processes get longer and more expensive and can just get thrown out by a judge anyway, companies, I guess, may just decide that it's no longer worth it. Hmm. All right. So what's next on this? 
Well, this is all happening very fast this week. So the case is now at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That is traditionally a pretty conservative court. Um, both sides, a coalition of conservative groups, along with um, the DOJ, the U.S. government, have now weighed in, um, and and the court is, is considering it. And so this original preliminary injunction is set to go into effect this coming Friday. The DOJ has asked for the appeals court to respond. Before then, they've asked for them to do so by noon on Central Time tomorrow. That was NPR's Becky Selvin. Becky, thanks so much. You're welcome. Cairo is a bustling, noisy city of 20 million people. But for the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, the streets welcome another kind of sound, drums and horn. NPR's Aya Batrawi met a group performing a unique blend of sound in the city's neighborhoods. It's just before Ramadan when I meet three wedding musicians from the city of Mansoura. They've traveled nearly 100 miles south to Cairo to perform a niche style of music. They zigzag through the city's narrow streets and alleys, surrounded by high-rise apartment buildings. Their audience watches from balconies. This is the sound of Metta, a genre rooted in praising and venerating the Prophet Muhammad. Ali Abdel Minam plays the drum known as the tabla and tells me the most important part of this work is the public's approval. Without that, there's nothing. If people like what they hear, they toss the money from their balconies. Their work starts in the afternoon and runs late into the night. They stop only for prayers and for iftar, the meal that breaks their day-long fast. They eat at public spaces like mosques that offer free meals in Ramadan. Abdelmanam says he earns and receives whatever God provides each day, and he isn't begging or asking for anything. The few dollars they might earn a day is just enough to cover their costs in Cairo and send money to their kids back in Mansoura. Ragab al-Sharif is the man on the trumpet. Well, to give you a clearer picture, it's a 20-year-old, golden-hued trumpet that's held together in some places with bandage tape. And finally, there's Ahmad Muhammad, the youngest of the group at 25 years old. He also drums on the tabla, and it's his voice you're hearing here. He's what Muslims call a hafiz. That's someone who's memorized the entire Qur'an. He says being a hafiz helps him as a singer with intonation and rhythms of Arabic spoken word. The group's sound, known as Madh, has roots in Egypt from the mid-20th century, when Muhammad al-Kahlawi, known as Sheikh al-Maddahin, popularized it. Al-Kahlawi became the voice behind hundreds of songs venerating the Prophet Muhammad on radio stations across the Middle East in the 1950s and 60s. They also draw inspiration from other musical giants of that era, like Umm Kalthum and Abdul Halim Hafiz. And like the streets of Cairo where they perform, their unique blend of sound is unscripted and improvised. They don't rehearse. Madh comes from feeling, memory, and the heart. And just like that, the theme song from The Godfather sneaks in 
Al-Sharif says he didn't know it came from a Hollywood movie and he just learned it by ear. I check in with them again during Ramadan. They tell me it's been a good run so far and that they've performed every night. The religious devotion, rhythms and trumpet of this group from Mansura echo Cairo's own cultural mosaic to create a distinctly Egyptian experience in Ramadan. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Cairo. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, exploring how to fight a protein that keeps cancer cells alive. Learn more about Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org slash stories. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Should be another nice evening ahead than a partly cloudy night tonight. Not too chilly, right about the mid-50s. Tomorrow, another bright day could rise well into the 80s. Then for Friday, sunny again, back to the mid-70s. Sumner Tunnel will not be closed to traffic this weekend. The state says it'll keep the Sumner open for the Patriots Day weekend. The tunnel is closed most weekends for construction work. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices, catering your office lunch in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Inflation eased up a bit in March as the price of gasoline and groceries dropped, but the cost of services is still climbing, and that's keeping overall inflation high. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, April 12th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the drug xylazine is linked to an increase in overdose deaths. The Biden administration plans to roll out an emergency plan to combat its use. Once we found out what was in the supply, it was too late because individuals were already chemically dependent on it. Vaping company Juul is paying to settle yet another case. Massachusetts and five other states will share the $462 million settlement. These stories and my unsung hero coming up. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former President Donald Trump has filed a civil suit in federal court against his former lawyer and confidant who could be a key witness against him in Trump's upcoming criminal trial in New York. NPR's Ilya Meritz reports Michael Cohen is accused of breaking a confidentiality agreement. Trump's lawyer says his client has suffered vast reputational harm because of Michael Cohen's frequent media appearances, his podcast and his books. Cohen allegedly violated attorney-client privilege, spread lies about Trump, and also overbilled for services. Trump expects damages to, quote, substantially exceed half a billion dollars. The suit comes just after Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg secured a grand jury indictment against Trump with the help of Cohen's testimony. Cohen pleaded guilty to federal crimes in 2018. Trump was indicted this month for allegedly covering up the hush money payment to a former adult film actress, which Cohen helped to broker. Ilya Meritz, NPR News. In a statement, Cohen's lawyer today said he is confident the suit will fail based on the facts and the law. The Biden administration is reaffirming its commitment to protect reproductive rights in the U.S. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the renewed pledge from Vice President Kamala Harris comes nearly a week after a federal judge in Texas suspended the distribution of a widely used abortion pill. Vice President Harris says the administration will keep fighting on every front to protect the integrity of the nation's health care system. Speaking at the White House, Harris said the ramifications of the judge's ruling are wide-sweeping. We have in effect a situation where politicians and politics have driven lawyers to go to a court of law where a judge who is not a medical professional is making a decision to undo over 20 years ago of the FDA. The Justice Department has filed an emergency stay seeking to block the ruling which strikes down the FDA's approval of the widely used abortion drug Mifepristone. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration is imposing sanctions on companies and individuals across more than 20 countries, accusing them of aiding Russia's war against Ukraine. NPR's Michelle Kalman reports. The State and Treasury Department say they're going after anyone who's helping Russia evade sanctions. They're also expanding sanctions to include youth programs that they say indoctrinate schoolchildren in Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine. A company in China has been singled out for providing satellite imagery of Ukraine to help the Russian war effort. There are also companies based in Cyprus, the United Arab Emirates, Turkey and Hungary that have been added to U.S. blacklists. The U.S. is also trying to constrain Russia's state atomic energy corporation and says it will continue to impose costs on anyone supporting Russia's war. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 38 points. The Nasdaq fell 102 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking the city council to approve her $4.3 billion budget proposal. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the mayor formally rolled out the spending plan this morning. Wu's 2024 budget proposal is about 7% higher than last year. It includes $4 million for universal pre-K and $50 million to improve Boston public housing properties and help make them fossil fuel free. Wu says this budget also focuses on funding basic government services like repairing stairs and sidewalks. So we want to make sure that rather than just always announcing new things and new things and new things, and certainly there's some great new things here, uh, the focus also has to be on doing what we already do well. The city council will hold several hearings on the mayor's budget proposal with a vote expected before the summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. 
Governor Maura Healey is establishing a judicial nominating commission. She signed the executive order creating it today. It will be responsible for advising the governor on the nomination and appointment of judicial officers in coordination with the governor's council. Healey appointed the 27 members of the commission today and established a code of conduct for members and judicial nominees. Employees at the Boston REI store in the Fenway announced today plans to form a union. They sent a letter to the company management asking for the retail chain to voluntarily recognize the union. They also filed papers to hold a vote to organize and say they want more consistent schedules and better pay. An REI spokesperson says the company fully supports the vote in Boston. Workers in REI stores in New York, Berkeley, California, and Cleveland have all successfully unionized. And Senator Ed Markey will be joining President Biden on his current trip to Ireland. Uh, Biden's in Belfast in Northern Ireland today. The Boston Globe reports Markey is set to join the president on the next leg of the trip, which is set to wrap up Friday. While diplomatic in nature, the trip is also personal to both men. Biden's family hails from Ireland's County Mayo. Markey's ancestors come from County Kerry. In the forecast, 71 degrees now in the Boston area. A beautiful evening. Then overnight tonight, clear, dipping just to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunny skies creeping all the way to the mid-80s tomorrow. Friday should be sunny once again, pulling back to the mid-70s. Then a lot cooler over the weekend. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. And I'm Juana Summers. The request for price check on aisle four brought some good news for a change. Grocery prices fell last month for the first time in two and a half years. Gasoline prices were also down in March. Those were some of the highlights from the government's latest inflation snapshot. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now with details on the report. Hey, Scott. Hi, Juana. All right. So this was a little better than forecasters had expected. Any more details about what exactly is going on here? Let's start with those supermarket savings. You know, grocery prices had been on a tear really ever since the start of the pandemic when people suddenly had to eat all their meals at home. Last month saw the first actual decline in grocery prices since September of 2020. Now, it wasn't a huge drop, three-tenths of one percent, but some of the priciest items saw a bigger break, including eggs. Egg prices, as you know, were an inflationary poster child earlier this year when avian flu knocked out a lot of laying hens. That has started to turn around, though, and egg prices plunged nearly 11 percent last month. That's a relief for Taylor Marks, who lives in Rowlett, Texas. When I work from home, I eat them every day for breakfast, so I eat a lot of eggs. Other customers have also taken notice of the falling prices. Tom Charlie, whose family runs a small chain of supermarkets in the Pittsburgh area, says he's now selling four times as many eggs as he was earlier this year when the price topped out at $5 a dozen. By the way, Wana ham prices also dropped about 5% last month, so you can definitely save some green on eggs and ham. (laughs) Gosh. All right, Scott, what is happening to overall inflation? Annual inflation was 5% in March. That's the lowest it's been in almost two years, way down from last summer when inflation hit a four-decade high of just over 9%. But it's still a lot higher than Americans were used to back before the pandemic and before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Taylor Marks says even though she is glad to see gas and grocery prices coming down, she still feels squeezed by the rising cost of living. Even when my take-home pay goes up a little bit, With everything else rising, too, it just doesn't feel like 
I truly got a little bit of a raise. If you strip out food and energy prices, which tend to bounce around a lot, so-called core inflation is still stubbornly high, 5.6% over the last 12 months. Okay, and what's keeping those prices climbing? One of the biggest drivers of inflation last month was the cost of housing. Uh, But there is some good news there. Housing costs are not climbing as fast as they were, and they're expected to cool off further as the year goes on. What inflation watchdogs are really worried about now is the price of services for things like travel and entertainment. Uh, Airfares, for example, jumped 4% last month. Hotel rooms jumped more than 3%. Mary Daly, who leads the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco, says people spend a big chunk of their money on services. And until those prices start to come down, it's going to be hard to get overall inflation under control. We need to see that coming down to feel confident that we're on our path to 2%. What I'm looking at today, I say, oh, the economy is making the adjustments I would like it to make, but we're not there yet. Now, there is some encouraging news. One big factor in the cost of services is wages, because, of course, it takes workers to deliver services. And we have seen some cooling in wage growth in recent months. So over time, that should take some of the pressure off services prices. Scott, how does the Fed plan to address inflation as it's coming down? Fed officials are widely expected to raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point when they meet next month. Uh, They've signaled, though, that could be their last rate hike for a while. That's because the central bank is keeping a close eye on bank lending, which has slowed sharply after the collapse of those two big regional banks last month. A slowdown in bank lending acts kind of like an additional interest rate hike, putting the brakes on the economy and maybe helping to curb these rising prices. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Coming up, the story of an unsung hero who helped a woman in New York City. But let's turn to politics now. The Republican presidential field for 2024 is starting to take shape. Former President Donald Trump, of course, is in and is considered the frontrunner. And today, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott took another step of his own bid, announcing an exploratory committee. That allows him to raise money while testing the waters. Joining us to discuss the 2024 Republican field is NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne. Hey, Don. Hey there. All right, so let's start with Senator Tim Scott, who's inching towards an official campaign. He's a conservative from a deep red state, South Carolina. He's the only black Republican in the Senate. What's his pitch to voters? He makes the case that his life, his success as an African-American Republican, as a true conservative, is a testament that Republican policies work for all Americans. He made his announcement today in the form of a video, and in it, he puts race front and center, opening with images of South Carolina's Fort Sumter, where the first shots of the U.S. Civil War were fired on this very date in 1861. In the video, he says, the country is once again being tested and divided, and he blamed Democrats. Joe Biden and the radical left have chosen a culture of grievance over greatness. They're promoting victimhood instead of personal responsibility, and they're indoctrinating our children to believe we live in an evil country. And it's worth noting that Senator Scott's reputation has been that of a good guy, statesman type in the Senate. Mm -hmm. But he was clearly reaching out to the hardcore base of the GOP with references to the radical left and and the liberal agenda. Hmm. It's early, but polls seem to show that Senator Scott has a very steep climb to the nomination. 
that's yeah, that's an understatement. He's <laughs> yeah. uh, respected, certainly, and has long been mentioned as a possible candidate for national office. But he starts out in the low single digits. Uh, Donald Trump, clearly the front runner. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, again, not yet in the race mm -hmm. officially, is right now considered the strongest challenger. Enough so that Trump has been attacking him in speeches, on social media, and there's a pro-Trump super PAC that's been running spots on cable news attacking DeSantis. I saw one while watching TV this morning. Here's just a taste of that. DeSantis voted to cut Medicare two times. DeSantis even voted to raise the retirement age to 70. The more you learn about DeSantis, the more you see he doesn't share our values. He's just not ready to be president. And worth noting here again that DeSantis is not yet a candidate, so we don't yet have attack ads on his behalf. Mm -hmm. Okay, and there's another name from South Carolina to mention outside of Tim Scott, former governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley. How does that play in a state that holds its primaries early and where they should both be looking for like that home field advantage? And right now, neither can claim any kind of home field edge. Mm -hmm. uh, a brand new poll from Winthrop University shows Trump way ahead in South Carolina. In distant second place is DeSantis. Haley is in third, but a close third. Then Scott is way back in single digits. Unlike Democrats, Republicans are not shaking up their presidential primary calendar. They're sticking with the Iowa caucuses going first early next year, then New Hampshire. I guess the point being that there's still almost a year of campaigning ahead before people start voting. And so there's a lot that can happen, right? A, a lot can and, and will happen. Uh, campaigning really is only now, just now, kicking into higher gear. Uh, people like Haley and Scott are doing traditional campaign stuff in the early states, speeches, town halls, photo ops with kids, uh, sometimes photo mm -hmm. ops with farm animals, literally. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yes, there's uh, certainly plenty of evidence that reinforces Donald Trump's strength with the core GOP base, 30, maybe 35 percent of the party is with him. And in a crowded field, that's enough to win. The field is starting to grow. And even with a few candidates, if they start to divide the anybody but Trump vote, that makes it hard for an alternative to Trump to gain any kind of traction. The other wild card, we don't know how all of Trump's legal problems are going to play out as part of this. NPR's Don Guiney. Thanks, Don. My pleasure. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Heather Church will never forget the day, many years ago, when she walked into a busy clothing store in New York City. When I went in there, I went down to the lower level, taking the stairs and wearing a very long skirt and a pair of boots. My skirt got caught on my boot, and it threw off my balance, and I felt my hand reach for the railing and miss it, and my body twisted as my boot tugged on my skirt, and suddenly I was falling down the stairs backwards, and then I heard steps, stomps in fact, moving quickly towards me. And someone caught me. My head didn't hit those hard stairs, and I didn't suffer any injuries. And I don't know who that person is. 
That is my unsung hero. I don't know who they were, and I was so flustered at the time. I can't even remember their face, but I do remember what they did for me that day, and I remain grateful. Thank you. Heather Church lives in New York City. She says she hopes that stranger at the store might hear this story and understand how much their actions continue to impact her all these years later. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, depression is not just bad for your health, it can also be damaging to your professional life. Mental health and career health tonight on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. On Wall Street today, the Dow dipped about a tenth of a percent, S&P lost four-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down eight-tenths of a percent. In other business news, New York City's police department will once again deploy robot dogs made by Waltham-based Boston Dynamics. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says that digi-dogs will be used to assess bomb threats and hostage situations. They will not be equipped with weapons. The city abandoned a tryout with the robot dogs two years ago after residents expressed privacy concerns. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Red Sox hope to turn the tables on Tampa Bay for the second half of their series. The Rays won the first two games. Tonight's matchup will have Chris Sale against starter Taj Bradley, who's making his major league debut. Start time is in about 20 minutes. In the forecast, another nice evening ahead. Partly cloudy tonight, not too chilly, about the mid-50s. Tomorrow, bright sunshine could rise into the 80s. This is WBUR in Boston. WBUR supporters include Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. For several years, xylazine has been wreaking havoc among drug users in Philadelphia, particularly in the part of the city known as Kensington. On the street, it's known as Trank. It's a legal drug for veterinary use as a sedative. But when humans inject it, usually mixed with opioids, it can be devastating. Now, with xylazine linked to a stunning increase in overdose deaths across the nation, the Biden administration has taken an unusual step, designating the substance as an emerging threat. Over the next 90 days, the government plans to roll out a national plan to better understand, identify, and combat it. That's work Sarah Laurel has already been doing for the last four years. She's the founder and executive director of Savage Sisters, a housing and harm reduction nonprofit in South Philadelphia. We caught her in the middle of another very busy day. Thanks for taking the time, Sarah. Thanks for having me. All right, Sarah, I want to start with your, your own story, because not only do you run Savage Sisters, but you, you know the community of the people you serve really intimately and their struggles, right? I do. I am in recovery from homelessness as well as substance use disorder in Kensington. Can you tell us a little bit about what makes, you know, fentanyl, which is already dangerous, even more so when xylazine is added to the mix? Xylazine is a game changer for people who use substances. Uh, When it first was noticed in the Philadelphia drug supply, we started to see a slower response uh, when we were reversing overdoses. And then we began seeing wounds on individuals who are using uh, Trank Dope. And as the past four years have gone on, we saw a very large increase. It became the predominant supply with fentanyl becoming the adulterant to it. Hmm. And we are now left with individuals that have open gaping um, ulcers, infections, some necrotic tissue, and that leads to amputation. When we air conversations like this, I, th- I think listeners who don't have relevant experience sometimes tell us they don't understand why some people experiencing addiction would seek something so dangerous. I'm, I'm curious, what would you say to help them understand? Nobody asked for this. When you are a person who is purchasing drugs from the uh, criminal drug market, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody knew that it would have this catastrophic effect. However, once we found out what was in the supply, it was too late because individuals were already chemically dependent on it. So how do you help someone who is overdosing or withdrawing from xylazine? Typically, if you're just combating an opioid overdose, that individual responds rather quickly when administered naloxone. However, because of the heavy sedative in the drug supply, those individuals are not responsive. They are not beginning to breathe on their own. And so we now carry oxygen and have been for a few years. We are the only organization that carries it street side and reverses overdoses with naloxone and oxygen. Um, But I will say it is very effective. Um, As far as the withdrawal protocols, I'm not a medical professional. The individuals that are going into inpatient are being treated only for opioid withdrawal, which is a small part of what they are coming off of. So we need to address the xylazine withdrawal. Xylazine is an alpha-2 agonist, and it hits the GABA receptors. So it is similar to a benzo withdrawal. What do you make of this move from the Biden administration? Uh, Are there other specific practical recommendations you'd make to the White House about how to fight back against Trank? Well, I I don't. Their response is to say it's a problem. I haven't seen action yet. So my call to action is we need updated withdrawal protocols. 
We need updated overdose reversal protocols. We need safe supply. We need to stop focusing on one substance because no matter what happens, if we announce that we're hyper-focused on one substance, the criminal drug market will step in and we'll find a new adulterant that could be potentially more lethal and we will have to figure that out in a few years as well. We're four years deep in this. My city is devastated by these consequences and so are my friends. And we need resources street side immediately. Can you tell us about someone you've helped or are helping recently? We help people every single day. Uh, We have the storefront. Individuals come in for showers and wound care. Uh, Sometimes that looks like just wrapping those wounds and giving them supplies to take with them. A large number of the individuals that our wound care team treats, they need hospitalization. They need IV antibiotics. Some will eventually need an amputation. So what we are doing is the best that we can. However, the need is much greater. Um, We had a success story yesterday. An individual walked in and was ready to go to treatment and he got picked up and he left. The large majority of people that we see come in, they get harm reduction supplies, wound care showers, and then they go back about their business. Is there anything else you want people to know either about the drug or the people who use it? Please don't call it a zombie drug. It is not a zombie drug. My friends are not zombies. They are people who use substances and who are victims of the criminal drug market and the adulteration of the supply. And I am asking that we see some action around the response so that our friends can get the help that they need. Sarah Laurel, founder and executive director of Savage Sisters in Philadelphia. Sarah, thank you so much. Yep. The company that popularized vaping, Juul, is paying to settle yet another case. Today, the New York Attorney General Letitia James, with counterparts in five other states and Washington, D.C., announced the $462 million settlement. Jewel's lies led to a nationwide public health crisis and put addictive products in the hands of minors who thought they were doing something harmless. It's the largest settlement Jewel's paid so far in cases for its role in creating a new generation of young nicotine users. NPR's Yuki Noguchi joins us to talk about it. Hey, Yuki. Hey, Andrew. All right, so what does this settlement do? Well, there's the impact on the company, and then there's the question of what it might do for public health. Uh, It's obviously a financial blow for Juul, another one. With this, it will have paid well over $2 billion to settle these kinds of cases so far. It's in a target zone because Juul really single-handedly launched e-cigarettes and repopularized nicotine use, which had been on a serious decline among teens. And it used social media and exploited viral marketing very, very effectively. But in part because it's been a target, Juul is no longer a major player. Its success spawned hundreds of newer companies, some of which sell different forms of e-cigarettes like disposable pods and stuff. But Mm -hmm. what you know, I think the question is, what does this settlement signal to them? And California Attorney General Rob Bonta said this. I'm proud to stand up here today with a message to e-cigarette and vaping manufacturers. If you set your sights on our children, we will set our sights on you. So they're suggesting other companies might follow in Juul's footsteps. Huh. So, so if the industry has grown well beyond you know, just Juul, you know, do we know what effect pun- punishing Juul will have on youth vaping overall? Well, that's pri- precisely the concern among anti-nicotine and tobacco advocates. Dennis Hennigan is among them. He heads regulatory affairs for the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. Even now, uh, years after Juul entered the market, 
we still face a very serious problem of e-cigarette usage among kids. So Hennigan and others argue a lot of other things also have to happen. You know, the money has to go to funding smoking prevention programs. He wants to see internal jewel documents to study how the company engineered the success so they can better counter it. And he wants to see federal regulatory crackdowns, which he says have been too slow. What has the federal response been? Well, most of that's come from the Food and Drug Administration. And over the last couple of years, it's been reviewing every single e-cigarette product, which is 8 million items for approval. And the FDA initially denied Juul's products, but then is re-reviewing them. So far, the agency has approved a handful of e-cigarettes on the grounds, you know, they might help adults trying to reduce harm from smoking tobacco cigarettes. But the agency is rejecting products with youth appeal, you know, things that come with fruitier candy or mint flavors. Mm-hmm. So only a tiny percentage of the products out there are actually approved for adult use. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But you can still find tons of unapproved products sold at gas stations and other places because regulators stepped in after the youth e-cigarette boom was already underway. And removing them from the market has been a complicated process, you know, with little enforcement. NPR's Yuki Noguchi, thanks so much. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, offering an undergraduate summer internship development program that provides first-generation college students with the strategies, skills, and access to networks for success in the investment management industry while instilling a sense of social responsibility.